Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Last year, Netflix released the massively popular 10-part documentary series, Making a Murderer. The show is set in Wisconsin and follows the case against Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, who were arrested and subsequently convicted for the murder of a local woman, a photographer named Teresa Halbach. If you saw the series, you are well acquainted and perhaps a bit smitten with my guest today, Dean Strang, the unlikely breakout star. Strang and Jerry Buting, Avery's original defense attorneys, are now on a nationwide tour called A Conversation on Justice to discuss the larger implications of the case. When he entered college in the late 70s, Dean Strang wasn't hatching his plan to start a national dialogue about the flaws in our judicial system. He was singularly focused on being a political cartoonist. I was interested in politics before I had a particular political point of view, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. as a kid. Uh, and I and did. you graduated with a degree in government? Mm-hmm. And when you got out, you were cured of your editorial cartooning Yeah, you know, my, desire. my junior year, I, I ended up making one of the most mature decisions I've ever made in my life, to date, <laughs> still. Right. <laughs> okay. It's a ways to go. <laughs> which, which is deciding that as much as I loved cartooning, it wasn't going to be a good career. And I still, you know, if I sat down and started drawing regularly now, it'd be like an alcoholic with a bottle. I mean, but, you know, in the end, it's not collegial. It's very solitary. It's not constructive in the sense all you're ever doing is pointing out a problem, you know, skewering people and and, and identifying the problem is an important first step, but you're never part of a solution for it as a cartoonist. If you don't mind my asking, what was your family's politics? Your dad, your mom, were they? My dad was a, a Republican. He was what you would think of as a business Republican now. And, you know, and my mother, uh, what her politics were, she really did keep to herself. She did. I was so hoping you'd say she was a communist. No, she and wasn't. You grew up in this wonderfully <laughs> no. fractured household. I, I doubt it. But I doubt it. But she was by nature, in the very best way, a bleeding heart. She was. Mm hmm. So you're more your mother than your father. In many ways. Right, in that sense, yeah. You said you made a comment in, in an interview. I'm going to quote a couple of things from an interview that you did. Uh, you made a comment to Slate that you were the world's worst federal prosecutor. Yes, I and, think so. Uh, we'll describe how. Only 11 months on the job. Yeah, right? for, for one. Right, thankfully. <laughs> for, for one. <laughs> for, for society. I think. Yeah, for society, yeah. I lasted only 11 months. I, I didn't have the spine for it. I just did not have the spine for it. Um, Sentencing's tore me up. Uh, What do you think it takes to do that job? I think it takes, you know, sort of a greater... A need? A greater need or a a, a greater centrality of uh, order as a a first value, just order. Uh, First of all, you know, you're working for a huge organization, the U.S. Department of Justice, so you you can't just be freelancing. You know, (laughs) there's 11 volumes of the United States Attorney's Manual you've got to follow. And second, you know, um, 
when you're prosecuting, what you're trying to do invariably is maintain the status quo. Keep the evidence the cops have found or the agents have found. Keep it from being suppressed. You know, assert the rectitude of the existing social order. You know, uh, carry out an idea of applying the you're law. You're part of a unit. You're part of a huge unit. I mean, you're <clears throat> part of the sovereign. What makes a good prosecutor to you? When have you sat in a courtroom and said, man, this guy or this woman, they're good? Uh, real connection with victims of crime, a, a real understanding of the human situation and ability to empathize with a defendant. What you're saying then is that uh, if I'm right, is that beyond them genuinely having an empathy for the victims, at least conveying that effectively to a jury? Yes. To pass on to the jury, look what happened to these people and put yourself in their and position. A, and a passion about it, a sense of passion about Art, it. An articulated passion. Yeah. From your side, as a defense attorney, are there people that come in and they sit down with you and they want your firm to defend them and you tell them no? How do you, what's, what's the process by which you choose, the firm and you individually, you choose who you will and won't defend? If it's a good fit, and there, sure, there are plenty of people we, we tell no, or in the end, you know, who walk in thinking they want us and walk out think, saying, no, you know, you may be the right lawyer for the next guy, but not for me. So at least for me, you know, an initial client meeting is two, three hours long, sometimes longer than that. And it's just feeling out, um, are we going to be able to work well together? And some component of that is the facts of the case? Or is that even kind of down the list of what's important? It's down the list. Why? That's interesting to me. Well, because, you know, the facts, I have no way of knowing the facts when the client's walking in. I haven't seen the first police report. I haven't, you know, seen anything the other side is saying. I have only the client's version and he may have a very fragmentary uh, very fragmentary understanding even of you know the facts as he even he doesn't know what what happened right <laughs> right or what other people are saying or right. you know and the less involved he was the less he can possibly know about what the accusation is right um, so, if, he's, if he's truly innocent and wasn't right. there then he doesn't know anything doesn't know anything um, or if he was you know if he was drunk or you know whatever um, and that's often you know, a lot of arrests involve <laughs> some drugs or alcohol on one or two or three or ten sides. Um, so a lot more of it is, just, is this going to be a good working relationship? Without giving any details, obviously, or names, obviously, um, do they walk in sometimes and you have that first meeting and it goes fairly well, but as time goes on, you sit there and say, this guy did it. <laughs> this person did it. Oh, well, sure. but if you've, And you still represent them. Yeah. If, if you've gotten off on a really good start... When that comes, I mean, I've had situations where somebody's trying to, to sell me on, I didn't do it, and then, you know, as time goes on, it becomes pretty clear they did. And do they admit it to you? If you've, if you've, if you've picked the right client and they've picked the right lawyer and you've worked on the relationship, they absolutely do. So at that moment in that relationship when that person reveals that they did do it, what's that like for you? What do you do? You, you just, but I'm already there generally. You know, generally, this is a conversation you know. that I've started. I'm waiting for you to say with, something. With them. Right. And, the, and, then, and then we, we simply revisit objectives because th if they've done it the, and the relationship is good, no longer is the objective, well, I, you know, I, I want to be acquitted at trial. I, I've never had a client say, I did it, but I want to be acquitted at trial. That's never happened to me yet. And so 
the, it may tomorrow, but it hasn't happened yet. So, so for those who don't understand the ethics of these relationships, they're paying you and requesting that you help them get away with it. Well, that ethically, they they could do that, and ethically, I can do that. I can't put them on the stand to give false testimony. I can't put anybody else on the stand I, I know is going to give false testimony. I, I, you just sit back and wait to see if the state makes their case. Yeah, you can rely on reasonable doubt in the end. Now, that's a that's a lousy defense strategy most of the time, simply to rely on reasonable doubt. That's not a compelling story to tell a jury, right? Um, but it could be done. I've never had to do that uh, at, to date, you know, because once there's a breakthrough and they say, oh, you know, I did it, it's, it's almost seamless to re- state the objectives of the representation at that point. Then it becomes, you know, but I, I, I understand I'm going to miss my kid's high school graduation. Is there any way I cannot miss his college graduation? You know, can you, can you mitigate the consequences here mm-hmm. and guide me through this? Um, and if the relationship is good and, and trusting in both directions, it it hasn't ever yet come down to, you know, I want you to go in and try to buffalo a jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy that I know worked at some mortgage lending company, got mixed up in the mortgage scandal, the prosecutable offense. His bosses, he was like a fourth tier junior executive at this company. And, th- and that's a generous title. It was really just a bunch of guys working in some office. In New York, and um, long story short, is they wound up going after him and squeezing him to give up everybody up above him, and then they would continue to squeeze up the chain. And uh, I mean, obviously, what I'm getting toward here is prosecutorial overreach, if you will, or whatever term you want to use. I don't want to say is there a kind of guy like uh, the prosecutor in the Dassey uh, case? It was. Uh, Ken Kratz. I don't want to say that Kratz is symbolic of the kind of people that go into that line of work, but at the very least, there's a lot of temptation for those people, isn't there, to abuse their power? That's part of why I flopped as a prosecutor. I mean, you you have to have that overriding belief in social order that warrants using people instrumentally, you know, sort of squeezing somebody to get the next bigger guy and then squeezing that one to get the one above him. And I I couldn't do that. This happens. A client comes in, potential client comes in, you meet with him, he lays it all out. And, you know, my reaction is, look, you're cooked. They've got you. And they're going to want you to cooperate against others. And you probably should. That's probably your best option right. at this point. And I, I don't do that. I'm not the right lawyer for that. I suck at working with agents and you know negotiating those kinds of deals. It's not interesting to me. There's no real legal work involved. There are lawyers who are very good at that, and it has to be done. Well, so, but is it understood in your field when you go into the courtroom, those guys have the edge. When you win the case, you really won the case because they've got every advantage that, coming uh, in. That's absolutely right. They really do. Um, and that's not to say that a lot of them don't work hard and you know are terrific lawyers. And most prosecutors are... On the up and up. Uh, absolutely. And committed to what they're doing and ethical and you know all, all that good stuff. And want to win the case on the merits. Yes. Right. Yeah. And want to do, you know, want to do what's fair, most of them. And so, you know, that's good. But um, but you're right. They're always the state. 
you know, they've got the state's resources. They've got the 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 base. unlimited legal fees. I always say these people they're never going to run out of money. Yeah, and and in this country, they've got the basic presumption of legitimacy. You know, even as opposed the, to other countries. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, even with the anti-government sentiment that you'll see rising in, you know, sort of conservative populism, even with that, most Americans at the, you know, at the ground level, you know, if they're serving on a jury in a criminal case. Think if he's charged, he did it. Think if he's charged, he did it. They trust the basic ground level competence of our government institutions, mostly. So as a lawyer practicing privately in the state of Wisconsin. So your first awareness of the Avery Dassey situation was in the media. You followed the case in the media. Oh, sure. And his exoneration back in 2003, um, when he was freed for the rape he didn't commit, it was all over the paper. And in the, and in the chambers of courtrooms in, in, in uh, Milwaukee and beyond in Wisconsin, how did that reverberate there? I mean, were the guys who were humiliated... Did they take that hard when they were hu- humiliated that way? I think a lot of them did. Um, I, I think some of them engaged in outright counterfactual thinking um, that, well, you know, maybe the DNA test is wrong or maybe there were two assailants and for some reason, you know, this poor victim only only told us about one, you know, preposterous stuff. But, you know, more broadly, the the when DNA exoneration started happening, it wasn't quite an existential crisis for the prosecution apparatus in this country, but I think it, it was a moment where they had to look in the mirror. You know, we, we sort of the hubris that we don't get things wrong or that we, you know, juries always come to the right outcome and judges weed out the cases that ought to be weeded out and prosecutors drop the things that ought to be prosecuted. That hubris just couldn't be maintained in the same way anymore. You had to acknowledge a known error rate and then acknowledge the possibility that there was an unknown error rate that was even, you know, larger. I'm assuming, um, because again, you do, in the show, you are presented, I'm not going to say you present yourself, but you appear, you know, very trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. If I, rec- if I touched all those uh, wow. references there. I still remember that all these years later. But you do seem like a pretty solid citizen there, so I was assuming that you wouldn't maybe want to comment on this, but Patrick Willis was the judge in the Avery case. Is he still on the bench? No, he retired. He retired. How long ago? I, three, four years, I'm guessing, something like that. Do you care to render any kind of observations about him or evaluations of him? Do you find it's better in your work if you don't do that? Well... I actually like Judge Willis. Um, I did, and I do. Um, and look, we, we elect our judges in Wisconsin with open elections. You know, a trial judge every six years, any lawyer can run against him or her. You like that system? No, I don't like right. that Neither system. Neither do I. And, um, and, it, and it affects how judges behave, especially in cases that are getting a lot of public attention. Right. And, um, you know, so what you're seeing there is... Is, is a judge who's well above the 50th percentile in a state that elects judges. I think he tried to get things right. Um, and, do, you know, do I think that he felt sort of the pressure of public attention? Yeah, I do think he felt the pressure of public attention. Do people who do what you do have an instinct that you can tell that the judge already thinks the person is guilty when the case starts uh, proceeding? Oh, sure. You can tell? Sure. So you found that the, this guy, he wanted to affirm what the cops and the prosecutors were saying. 
He's part of that system. That is to say that almost every judge in almost every case <laughs> believes... He did it no more, no less than other judges guilty. Yeah. They, you know, they lose, they lose really... They get habituated to guilt. They get habituated to a system... Have you seen judges that are not like that? Uh, yes, on occasion. On occasion, you see a judge who sits there and goes, I'm not quite sure, at the very least. Right. But boy, they have to hang on to that hard. They ha- you know, when, when 92, 95, 96% of the people are pleading guilty in the end... You know, and when you're seeing the same cops and prosecutors every day and, you know, you're going to retirement parties together, it becomes a courthouse click. And you got to hang on real hard to, you know, the possibility of innocence. When you watch Making a Murderer, what you get sucked into, it becomes like Clue. And, and it's almost like Demos and McCarty got people to start playing this game of how many of these facts do you remember? And how do you piece them together? And you have a chance to play lawyer for a little while. Right. But as an actual lawyer, what were some of the first things you saw in the case where you said to yourself, this is wrong? The key. The key. The key, just something something doesn't square with the police explanation for this. I can't, you know, you try to look at it from the other side. You know, what's the prosecution going to say? What's their argument? Can I parry that? You know, how do we handle that? And so you you try to flip around your point of view. If I were them. If I were them. And I don't know what I'd say about that key. More on that key when we return. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos, the filmmakers of Making a Murderer, who spent 10 years capturing Stephen Avery's story. You know, we were there simply to document events as they were unfolding. You know, we were not there to judge. We were there to listen and to witness. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Dean Strang is the former co-counsel for Stephen Avery, a man convicted of a brutal murder as documented by the 10-part series Making a Murderer. The show sheds light on major flaws in the prosecution's case. Dean Strang says there was one piece of evidence in particular that didn't add up, a key found in Avery's home during the investigation. Well, this was the seventh search. Um, the bedroom of a single wide yeah. trailer. The size of this booth we're in. Uh, about the size of this booth we're in. Right. Seriously, about the size of right. the, I this would booth. Imagine. Maybe a little bit bigger. You got a standard size mattress in there. Um, and so that, the, the key, you know, just didn't add up um, on the explanation the police were given. For me, you know, to my eye. In terms of a tipping point in the trial, I think it's when the judge allowed the FBI analyst to testify to the EDTA testing. Which was? Um, when you say EDTA. EDTA was this preservative that, that is in uh, vials that are used you know, to store blood, right. to keep the blood liquid. And EDTA is a chemical that's used in all kinds of... So refresh our products. listeners' memory, what, what, what happened there? Well, so you, you start... So the blood was taken from Avery... In 1994, there was... For what purpose? For early DNA testing. That was inconclusive at that time. And so there it sits in a vial after 1994. In a courthouse? In the clerk's office in the courthouse. 
the custodians of which are the sheriff's department, ultimately. And now you fast forward to November 2005, Teresa Halbach's car is found. There looks like blood around the ignition, you know, area um, on the dashboard. That blood gets collected. It's identified as being Stephen Avery's blood. How did it get there unless he was bleeding and was in the car and, you know, presumably turning the, the key in the ignition? Well, this is, you know, and this is the, the you know, the, uh, the moment. game on moment <laughs> in, in the trial, you know, with Jerry Buting, um, where, wow, there is a vial of Stephen Avery's blood in the courthouse. The seal on the box has been slit. And when you open the box up, now that the seal's slit without explanation, the blood's still liquid. So could the blood from that vial have ended up smeared on Teresa Halbach's dashboard? And the blood is still liquid how? In the way it wasn't refrigerated or frozen. No, no. It's in the container and it remains like a good. There's a substance they put in there, correct? The, the, the vial, as all are, is treated with this chemical EDTA chemical compound. Right. Just say is a common, it's in a lot of household goods, it's edible, it's even, you know, it's even in some of the So when you put that in there, it doesn't affect the DNA testing of the blood no. sample itself. It, with keeps that blood, it liquid. It just keeps it liquid. And we will always know that is that person's blood it matches. Well, yeah, it just makes it easier to test. So what was the, the ruling about the liquid. EDTA that you were referencing? So, so the state, now it's got a problem, right? Oh my God, <laughs> the, the police in theory did have access to his blood and one of the officers involved in this investigation heavily was the one who transported this vial of blood back in ninety four to and the knew where it was. And knew where it was, knew it existed. And so what do we do? You know, the state's saying what do we do about that? Well, let's see if we can test the blood from the dashboard to see if it contains EDTA. Because if it doesn't, then the hypothesis is it couldn't have come from the vial because it would have EDTA in it if it had been in the vial, right? right? So initially they said, judge, you know, exclude the blood vial and all this argument about planting the blood because there's nobody who can do a test for EDTA and or certainly can't do it in time. The judge said, no, I'm going to let it in. And so then they got the, they talked the FBI into going into into double time um, to try to, you know, redo the EDTA testing. I think the last time the FBI had done that was in the O.J. Simpson prosecution, where that was an issue as well. And the EDTA was an issue there. So the FBI had gotten out of that business, and the state of Wisconsin talked them into getting back into it. And then mid-trial, you know, on a Friday afternoon, as I recall, we get 750 pages of reports and we're told the FBI analyst is going to come in and say he couldn't detect EDTA in the blood from the dashboard of the car. And when the judge ultimately let that in, and of course we couldn't do independent testing or defense testing at that point, we're five Why? weeks. Because we're four or five weeks in the trial and nobody but the FBI does this and, you know, it just... You couldn't do it. We're, we're there just was no resource. No resources and no time. Uh, no, but it. why no time? What do you mean? You couldn't Because ask we it? were in trial. We were five weeks into trial. And, and the judge part. wouldn't have allowed you if you could have found an independent source to determine something as significant as that? To have a month off or something to go do that? No, I don't think there was any way in the world the judge would have allowed that. But is it safe to say that the case potentially hinged on that? 
I thought that was the tipping point in the trial. Um, did anybody subsequently find out, did anybody go after the trial and go and get the testing done so that they could then publicize? We had an independent test done that said that there were traces of ED. Did that happen? Not yet. Not yet. You know, I find that the, the, the most difficult thing for me to face, this was in family law court. This is in criminal proceedings that friends of mine have been involved in, in civil proceedings that my ex-wife was involved with. And that is that the job that is the toughest job, the job that requires the greatest uh, attention and acuity and intellect and bravery is to be a judge. What people don't understand about the jurisprudence system in this country, as far as I'm concerned, is is that you're sitting there and the judge is like, according to case law, for me as a judge to rule, I can rule either way. Right. I've got case law to rule either way. Which one of you do I like more? Which one of you do I want to reward more? Whatever resembles truth rarely walks into or out of a U.S. courtroom. One of, one of my favorite moments and favorite judges... I'll remember this guy until I can't remember anyone anymore. Um, about five foot two, quiet guy, wore hush puppies, only judge in a in a rural county in Wisconsin, and and you know and and I had a number of experiences with him, and they were all good. He just was judicial. He was wonderful. fair, fair. I mean, it you know, you don't see that many like this, right? But but the crystallizing moment for me. I had brought a, a motion to suppress some evidence in a in a case, and it required testimony of a police officer and testimony of my client. And uh, the police officer was was a good guy. I liked I liked that detective. I liked him. I thought he was a truth teller. Um, and so he testified at the suppression hearing. My client testified at the suppression hearing. Um, she was a a saleswoman, a little bit. A little bit brassy, a little bit hard-edged. She was likable, though, in the end. And this guy said, you know, I heard the testimony, and, off, you know, Detective so-and-so, he was, he was very credible, very believable. You know, but the defendant, she was, she was credible, too. I, 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 you know, <laughs> I have no reason to disbelieve what she said. And, and, you know, you don't get this from judges. Usually, well, they are, you know, balancing the credibility, the officer was very credible, and the, you know, defendant was not, and... He said they both were very, very credible, believable people. Um, I have no real reason to disbelieve either one of them. And uh, that makes this a very close case. And in our system of government, close cases go to the defense. The motion's granted. <laughs> I could have kissed him. I could have run up and kissed him. He was, it was, you don't have many experiences with judges like that. So when the Avery case ends... Uh, and he's found guilty again. Describe to me how you felt. It, it, sick to my stomach. I mean, I, I think I literally felt sick to my stomach. And and I'm somebody who always tells himself, no matter how well a case has gone, they're going to come back guilty. They're going to come back guilty. They're going to come back guilty. I have to tell myself that because I can I can Survive, deal. Yeah. yeah, I can deal with the the wonderful un, you know wonderful pleasant surprise. What was different of here? Occasional acquittal, but, but what was different here? Well, I had told myself they're coming back guilty. They're coming back guilty. But when you hear it, you know when you actually hear it, and then you know first verdict, first count, guilty, first degree intentional homicide, and then in the next breath not guilty of burning the body you know you you realize that a compromise was struck 
um, and that you know you you were in the game. You were, or, you know, it's not a game, but you were you were you were there. You created some doubt somewhere. You were there, and a compromise got struck, and it got away from you. And um, how did Avery strike you in the time that you spent with him? Did you look at him in his background and his profile and say, "This is going to be tough"? Sure. Because he's not sure. a very articulate guy. No, no, and and he's been kicked around by the world, and his whole family was. And the Stephen Avery I came to know projects exactly on the screen. It, it the, the Stephen Avery you're seeing in the in this ten hour film, and his parents and his family members is exactly the guy I came to know, and the people I came to know. Um, it was remarkable how directly they projected in an unfiltered way. Where is he now? He's at Wapun Correctional Institution in Wisconsin, our oldest, our first, and therefore oldest prison still in use. And what is the update, if any, on his uh, legal status? He's got an, an aggressive, good uh, new lawyer from the suburbs of Chicago, assisted by an innocence project in Kansas City. They're working really hard on this. Is someone shaking that blood vial tree, I hope? I don't know. You know, I, I don't. I don't, <laughs> don't ask her what she's doing. You don't, um, you don't talk to her I'm, much. I'm there to help when and if she wants it. Um, you know, and I, I pass along information that comes to me and really should be going to her. Um, but they're working really hard on the case. Uh, were you surprised at what kind of a firestorm that show created? Oh, I, surprised hardly begins to say it. Really? You know, it hardly begins to say it. I got my first email at six thirty Central Time the night that that came out. A guy in Charleston, South Carolina had been homesick from work and he'd watched all 10 hours of it and and then, you know, was moved for whatever reason to Google me and find my email. So was I. And, <laughs> well, but, but, you know, funny, you, I think you, it came out on a Friday, December 18th, and I think you called me on Monday, if I remember right, and I had been off to court somewhere and I came back to my office and there's a voicemail, and it's some guy saying he's Alec Baldwin, and it sure as hell sounds like Alec Baldwin to me. And uh, and there's a, you know there's a, a telephone number, and I thought this is going to get weird. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> things and it are, has gotten things weird. are going to change, but they have changed, and they have. Yeah. Now, I can't say that Avery is capable of doing the things that are described in the indictment. The sexual assault, the uh, you know the uh, abduction and tying them down and killing them and burning them, all this. I mean, it just goes to this level from on a scale of one to ten, it's a twenty. And I can't say that they would do that, and I can't say that they wouldn't. I'm just saying I don't think that it's proven in the case that they did. But the the next thing obviously becomes I mean, like OJ, who said I'm going to spend the rest of my life finding out who really did this. Um, I'm hard-pressed to think, who would do that? Was there ever any thought about alternative suspects? Yeah, no, we we identified a number of people with opportunity to do this, uh, who were proximate, you know, nearby, and whose past suggested some legitimate tendency to worry about it. The judge excluded all that. But on your point, I mean, you're you're an actor. Um, If you were playing Brendan Dassey and somebody handed you a script that says, okay, a 16-year-old boy who's who's got some learning disabilities and who's had zero sexual experience 
The script calls for this 16-year-old boy, you, Alec Baldwin, playing him, to come over to his uncle's trailer and to be told to come in, take off all his clothes, and have sex in front of his uncle with a woman who's manacled to the bed and screaming for her life, you know. After he's walked home Action. from school. <laughs> Action, right. You're, you're going to throw the script back we'd, and say nobody's yeah. going to believe this. We'd have to sit down it's, and think about that. It's yeah. preposterous. It, you know, it, I can't make this work. I may be a great you're, actor, you're, but I'm, I... I'm, we're making the same point. Right. You know, one of the things that uh, Moira and Laura, we, we uh, you know, kind of underlined when they were here, was my callback and how the judge said, don't try the case in the press. So the prosecutors basically handed Hall back the script. Did that irk you when he was doing that? It... Yeah, it bothered me. Um, I, you know, and I, I'm not inclined to be too critical of a, of, of any victim's family. Victim's family. Right. You know, they, they all process yeah. it at, in their own way. And he I, was I very sanguine the whole time. It was, it was amazing how little emotion there was in my callback. Well, I think he was trying hard, you know, to do that. Mike's a nice guy, actually. I'm just telling you. Yeah. I, you know, he and his brother Tim and the, and the parents, for that matter. Um, so I think Mike Didn't was they have any curiosity to find out potentially that there was someone else that killed their sister? I don't know. I can't. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just yeah, saying that I, for me that the yeah. two go hand in hand. I mean, yeah. he may be a nice guy, but I thought, boy, he, he has a level of certainty. I, I would really want to know who did it, you know. Well, you know, were, we can circle back to we trust the police in right, this country. They, 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 in yeah, the main, they, most yeah. of us trust the police. Now, things have changed for you. I, I was stunned to see in Slate, and I have to, I have to call her out on this, that Heather Schwedel, I believe her name is spelled, in her piece in Slate was interviewing you, and she talked about how you become a heartthrob. Has is, is your legal practice just exploded now, or is everything no. just going your way? No. Are you dressing differently? <laughs> You're wearing your hair differently. My wife, several years ago, started trying to dress me better, um, and, I, you know, and I indulged that. What'd your wife think about all this? Oh, she, she can hardly stop laughing. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, um, heartthrob I'm not. But what's changed for you? Well, here I am in New York City talking to Alec Baldwin across right. the table. And doing a bunch of other things, too. And, right? and doing a bunch of talking at universities and colleges and bar groups and charities and the, you know, the theater stuff with Jerry. Um, so, so sort of everything has changed um, in the last few months. And it'll change back again. Um, but, you know, there's a moment where... You know the things I've wanted to say for a long time, and nobody wanted to hear. Now some people are are, are willing to give me an opportunity to say it. When you speak before legal groups, especially or universities, well, give us an example schools. of one of those things might be. Talk about the the role of class uh, in our criminal justice system, and not just how poorly we fund indigent defense, but why there are so many indigents. In, to defend in the system, linkage between class and race and ethnicity. Um, the role of electing judges, uh, police interview techniques with people who are vulnerable or unsophisticated, uh, often learning disabled. And there's any number of things that, that you know, that I, I, I'm, I'm glad America's getting a glimpse of how this really works. No offense intended, but not in a movie, you know, not, not in a fictional account. So, um... For the time, I, I, I think I've got a, a duty to speak up. We'll be able to hear Dean Strang speak up even more. Dean Strang, Road to Justice, an eight-episode television series, is now in development. Strang will study big-time cases that expose the weaknesses in our criminal justice system. Sign me up. 
This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.